everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave. 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful world of ours right now, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to tell you a story that you probably know or think that you know. It's the fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. There was a recent art installation by activists who are opposing Donald Trump, which involved nude statues of the Donald, and this inspired me to explore this story. Now, the fairy tale is best known, I think, as a kind of a parable almost to the value of speaking truth to power, but there's more to unpack in this tale than that simple lesson. And similarly, this program is not about Trump. (laughs) We've been talking about the Titanic versus the Olympian for a couple of months now, and that is once again the backdrop for today's story. While the Trump phenomenon, if we want to call it that, is an outgrowth of the Titanic in American culture, the dynamic that we're discussing here is much bigger than one man, however fascinated he may be with the huge. Now let's pause for a moment and refresh our sense of the Titanic, the Titanic versus the Olympian, which has been the context for our last few programs. The Titanic refers to our longing for the unbounded, for the gigantic, And this is a powerful force in American culture today. It's all of the various ways that we uh, attempt to achieve the unlimited and are excessive. It's the huge and the crude. And the Titanic is running roughshod over the relatively small and uniquely beautiful beings, places, and things that many of us love. The Titanic is heard in the rhetoric of abstractions, abstractions of power, big ideas that make the details and the specifics irrelevant. And this Titanic out there numbs our feelings and dwarfs our sensitivities. We experience our own Titanism inside as stress and emptiness. Now the Titanic is challenged by, was successfully defeated in Greek mythology by the Olympians, specifically by Zeus. Zeus as the champion of the differentiated imagination. Zeus as that perspective and imagination that populates, if you will, the Titanic emptiness with a specific and individual. The Olympian and the Titanic are perspectives that we are taking from Greek mythology, personified in figures of the Titan Kronos and his son, the Olympian Zeus. So let me give an example that might help you get your arms around these two ideas. An example that's taken from the myths of the war between these two. Kronos, 
swallowed his children. That is, the new life and the possibilities that they represented. You might be familiar with the famous painting by Goya. I think he uses the Latin name, refers to Saturn rather than Kronos, but of Saturn devouring his children. Kronos keeps the new life and these possibilities from coming into the world. Zeus, on the other hand, has multiple affairs. <laughs> these affairs are a cornerstone, in fact, of Greek mythology. Zeus has affairs with the Titan sisters. He has affairs with the Olympian goddesses and with mortal women. He fathers a multitude of children, each a new set of possibilities and a new perspective. The difference between these two in this example illustrates the relative wealth and poverty of the Olympian and the Titanic. These are exercises in imagination and their choices in where we put our attention. Do we give our attention to the details? Do we use our senses to engage completely with the individual phenomenon of the world? Or are we lost and wandering in a set of empty, vacuous abstractions? Well, let me move on now and tell you the story. The Story of the Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. And I invite you to relax and listen and notice the details that grab your attention. These are useful information for you in terms of finding your own place in this story and the questions that it raises right now. Many years ago, there was an emperor who was so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money on them. He cared for nothing other than being well-dressed. He had no interest in reviewing his soldiers, in going to the theater, going for a ride in his carriage, in making any kind of public appearance except as an opportunity to show off his new clothes. This emperor had a suit for every hour of the day. And instead of saying, as one might about any other ruler, the king is in council, in his country, the people always said, ah, uh, the emperor is in his dressing room. Now, this emperor lived in a great city, a sophisticated and crowded place. There were lots of things going on, and every day many strangers came into this city. And one day, two swindlers arrived. Now these two swindlers let it be known that they were weavers and they said that they could weave the most magnificent fabrics imaginable. Not only were their colors and their patterns uncommonly fine and unique, but they said the clothes that were made of this cloth had a particular power. They became invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office or who was unusually stupid. The emperor heard about these weavers and their magnificent cloth. Well, 
Those would be just the clothes for me, he thought to himself. If I wore them, then I would be able to discover which men in my empire are unfit for their posts, and I would be able to tell the wise men from the fools. So I certainly must get some of this cloth woven for me right away. And he sent for the two swindlers, gave them a large sum of money to start work at once. Well, the two set up looms and pretended to weave, but there was actually nothing on the looms. They asked for fine silk and pure gold thread, and everything that they asked for went straight into their traveling bags for sale later, of course, and they pretended to work on these empty looms far, far into the night. Well, after a little while, the emperor thought, hmm, I'd I'd like to know how those weavers are getting on with this amazing cloth. Uh, But he felt hmm, a little uncomfortable when he remembered that uh, those who were unfit for their position were not going to be able to see the fabric. Now, of course, it wasn't really that he doubted himself, but he thought maybe it would be best if he sent someone else to see how things were going. The whole town knew about this cloth's peculiar power, and everyone was impatient to find out just how stupid their neighbors were. The emperor decided to send his honest old minister. He will be the best one to go to the weavers and to tell me how the material looks, the emperor thought. For my minister, he is a very sensible man, and no one does his duty better. So the honest old minister went to the room where the two swindlers sat working away at their empty looms. When he walked in, he saw nothing. Oh, my God, heaven help me, he thought. I can't see anything at all. But he didn't say so. And both of the swindlers begged him to be so kind as to come near the loom and inspect the cloth. They pointed into the emptiness, and the poor old minister, he stared as hard as he dared, trying to see something without being too obvious. What do you think of the colors, they said, and the patterns? Oh, my goodness, thought the minister. Can it be that I'm a fool? Oh, I I never would have guessed that, and not a soul must know. What if I am unfit for my job? I cannot let on that I can't see this cloth. Oh, please don't hesitate to tell us what you think of it, said one of the weavers. Oh, oh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's, it's enchanting, said the old minister. Such a pattern. What colors? Oh, I'm sure that the emperor will be delighted. Well, we're very pleased to hear that, the swindler said. And then they proceeded to name all of the colors and explain the intricate pattern. 
and the old minister listened very carefully with the closest attention so that he would be able to go and repeat it all to the emperor, which is what he did. The swindlers at once asked for more money and for more silk and gold thread so that they could get on with their weaving, and once again it all went into their pockets. They didn't put even one thread onto the loom, although they worked at their weaving as hard as ever. A little while later, the emperor sent another trustworthy official to see how the work was progressing and to find out how soon the cloth would be ready. And the same thing happened to him that had happened to the minister. He went into the room and he looked and he looked, but there was nothing to see, and so he couldn't see anything. Isn't it beautiful, the swindlers asked him, and they once again displayed and described their imaginary pattern and the fine colors. Hmm, I know I'm not stupid, the official thought, so it must be that I'm unworthy of my good office. That's strange. I mustn't let anyone find out, though. So he praised the material that he did not see, and he declared he was delighted with the beautiful colors and the pattern. He went back to the emperor and said, Your Majesty, that cloth held me spellbound. Now, the whole town was talking about this splendid cloth, and the emperor wanted to see it for himself while it was still on the looms. So he gathered together a band of his best men, including the old minister and the trusted official who had already been to see the weavers, and set out. When he got to the room, he found the two swindlers hard at work weaving with might and main at their empty looms. Isn't it magnificent? said the two officials who had already been duped. Just look, your majesty, what colors, what a design. And they pointed enthusiastically to the empty looms, each supposing that the others could see the stuff. Oh my God, what is this? thought the emperor. I can't see anything. Oh, this is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? Oh, what a thing to happen to me of all people. And then he said, oh, it's very pretty. It's very pretty. This cloth has my highest approval. And he nodded in the direction of the empty loom. Nothing could make him say that he couldn't see anything. His whole retinue stared and stared. None of them saw a thing, but of course none of them would admit this, and they all thought that they were the only ones, so they all joined in the emperor, exclaiming, Oh, it's very pretty, it's very pretty, and they even advised him to wear clothes made of this wonderful cloth, especially for the great procession that he was to lead very soon. Oh, magnificent, excellent, unsurpassed, they said, and everyone did his best to seem very well pleased. The emperor gave each of the swindlers a cross to wear in his buttonhole and the title of Sir Weaver. Now that the procession was decided upon, 
The swindlers sat up all night. They burned more than 16 candles to show just how busy they were finishing the emperor's new clothes. They pretended to take the cloth off the loom. They made cuts in the air with huge imaginary scissors. They made stitches with big imaginary needles. And at last they said, Now the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. The emperor came into the room with his noblest nobleman, and the swindlers each raised an arm as if they were holding up something. They said, These are your trousers, your majesty, and here is the coat, and your vest, isn't it beautiful? And this, of course, is the mantle. All of them are light as a spider's web. Why, one would almost think that he had nothing on. But that's what makes this fabric and these clothes so fine. Oh, exactly, all the noblemen agreed, though they could see nothing, for there was nothing to see. If your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, said the swindlers, we will help you on with your new ones. Here in front of the long mirror, the emperor undressed. And the swindlers pretended to put his new clothes on him, one garment after another. They took him around the waist and seemed to be fastening something. That was his train, as the emperor turned round and round before the looking glass. How well your majesty's new clothes look! Aren't they becoming? From all sides, the nobleman cried, the pattern so perfect, the color so suitable. It is a magnificent outfit. The minister of public processions appeared and announced, Your Majesty, the canopy is waiting outside. Well, I am ready, the emperor said, and he turned again for one last look in the mirror. It is a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. The nobleman who were to carry his train, stooped low and reached for the floor as if they were picking up his mantle. They pretended to lift and hold it high, and they didn't dare admit that they had nothing to hold. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. The streets were crowded with people. Everyone in the streets and hanging from the windows said, Oh, Look at how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection? Nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything, because that would, after all, prove that he was either unfit for his position or a fool. No, no costume the emperor had ever won before was such a complete success. And then a little child said, But... But he hasn't got anything on. Oh, said the child's father, did you ever hear such innocent prattle? And then one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on. And this was whispered from ear to ear to ear to ear until finally the whole town cried out, but he hasn't got anything on. The emperor shivered, for he suspected that they were right. But, he thought, this procession has got to go on. 
So he drew himself up and walked more proudly than ever, as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. So let's take a look at this, beginning with the child. That's where most analyses of this story begin. With the championing of the child, the innocent who trusts his own experience and is willing to speak truth to power. Trusting your own experience is important, and it is something that we are trained not to do as we get older. But I think it is important not to get confused about the wisdom here. It's not that the child is wise. The child is doing what children do. He lacks artifice, and that's important. (laughs) But the wisdom is found in an adult who understands when trusting in one's own experience and being genuine and authentic is called for and when it's not. So this raises the question of who is revealed in this story to be a fool? Is it just the emperor or is it in fact the whole town? Everybody already knew that the emperor was a fool, in a sense. Everybody knew that he was decadent. We're told that at the beginning of the story, when we hear that the people always said, well, you can find his majesty in his dressing room. So we have these swindlers who reveal that all of the people in this town are complicit in one way or another in this collective delusion a delusion that revolves around the emperor. They are all participants in one way or another in this system, in this kingdom, under his lousy leadership. Now this makes me wonder how the rest of us participate in keeping the systems that we're enmeshed in going. Even systems that we know are decadent or may complain about. The economy is the example that comes to my mind. How many times do we hear that we just can't afford to do what we know is the right thing to do? We just can't afford to feed everybody. We just can't afford to provide health care or housing or education. We just can't afford to clean up the environment. We just can't afford all kinds of things because of, quote-unquote, the economy. It will be bad for the economy. The procession in this story becomes a kind of metaphor, don't you think, for the power arrangements that persist because we participate in them and give them our attention. Do we do this out of fear? Maybe. Fear and or the secret hope that there will be a reward? What kind of stake do we have in the collective delusion? I think each one of us has a different answer to that question. And it's one that we need to be asking, that we need to be asking ourselves and each other, especially in these times when it's so easy to point fingers and it's so easy to talk about what the other guy's doing and to stand around waiting to see if the other guy is going to turn out to be a fool. Do we need childlike honesty to reveal our complicity? 
Or is it possible that it's the two swindlers who are actually the champions of truth? The two swindlers who, through trickery, show everybody in this story that they, in fact, are wearing no clothes. That leads me to look again at the nature of the deception of these swindlers. That they choose to present themselves as weavers of beautiful cloth makes sense, given that the weak spot, the point of vulnerability for the emperor, was clothing. But did you notice that their deception was one of imagination and words? They didn't present anything. They didn't make anything. They talked about it. They saw this beautiful, magical, light as spiderwebs cloth in their minds, and they described it to others with such passion and realism that they made it real in a sense. At the end of the story, we have the courtiers walking along behind the emperor holding up this imaginary train, as if in fact it was there. Now, if there's anything that we seem to have more trouble understanding and believing in these days than the power of mythology and our ongoing myth-making, it is the power of imagination and the ongoing necessity of imagining. We do not create, think, inhabit anything that is not touched by imagination. I wonder if it is our ongoing denial of our inherently imaginative natures and our collective insistence on perpetuating this delusion of rationality and reason that is hurting us most. What would happen, do you think, if we embraced our imaginative capacity? This story shows us the power of imagination from a variety of dimensions. It's shown as a tool for trickery and for teaching. And it's shown as the basis for the collective reality. It's a lot to think about in this little story. The Trump phenomenon, which is in the background of all of these conversations about the Titanic, is so much bigger than the man himself. It involves all of us. All of us with our own lack of fairness, our own shadow side, our own desire to find a scapegoat, and the fear that we all have, the fear behind the Titanic, the fear that things are out of control. It also points to our greed. In one of his many definitions of the Titanic, Hillman wrote, It's the invisible, unimaged, limitless greed locked inside human nature. Food for thought. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the Myth in the Mojave website or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. And if you find something of value in this program, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. 
you will also play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.